Hi, this is your host Kaylee. I am just breaking in here before the episode starts to let you know that this episode has been a bit doomed. Um, If you remember from earlier episodes, I mentioned I have a couple autoimmune diseases. Um, Those have been acting up. I went to Pride, the festival and the parade, and it wiped me out. Not to mention, uh, I am recovering from major surgery. And on top of that, uh, my very over-anxious Pekingese has decided she is going to play the hide the bone game. This is about the 10th time she's hidden her bone. She wants me to find it and then she grabs it and goes and hides it again and then I must go find it. So in order to get this episode out, I think I'm just going to do the best I can in terms of audio. I do apologize for any extra weirdness. I know my skill, I said before, my skills are a little bit rusty, so things have been not quite as perfect as I would like them to be. But in this case, I think they might be a little bit more subpar than I would like them to be. So I do apologize for that in advance. Otherwise, please enjoy this episode. Welcome to It's All Relative, the show where we look at the why behind the what that is femicide. I'm Kaylee, your host, and today we're going to start looking at the case of Russ and Elizabeth Faria. And to segue into this, I have Rihanna and Eminem. Just gonna stand there and watch me burn. Well, that's alright because I like the way it hurts. Just gonna stand. I can't tell you what it really is. I can only tell you what it feels like. And right now, it's a steel knife in my windpipe. I can't breathe, but I still fight. Well, I can fight. As long as the wrong feels right, it's like I'm in flight. High off a log, I came about this case in a slightly roundabout way. Yes, I think I have been living under a rock. So when I started this podcast, I reserved a bunch of books through the library system. And of course, they're all on hold and I'm waiting for them to become available and finally one book called bone deep about the murder of betsy faria finally became available and i checked it out and i read it and i became instantly sucked in to this whole case that definitely begins with a lot of the classic hallmarks of a family annihilator and it ended up destroying a whole family i'm covering it because there are so many things here that could easily and did actually at first be taken for classic family annihilator, classic husband kills wife scenario. And it ends up being a huge cautionary tale. Some of the time I cannot help being a little bit ranty. So you'll have to forgive me at those times. Um, but I would, that's the main reason I want to do it is because there's so much information in here that I think is pertinent to anybody who lives in our society. And anyway, so I read this book, I became enthralled, and then afterwards, afterwards, I realized, oh my god, it's everywhere, and yes, I've been living under a rock. I am very, very sorry if you feel like this case has been overdone. That is how you feel. Please feel free. Don't listen to the next couple episodes of this podcast. Just skip a couple of weeks and come back to my next case. Otherwise, we will start delving into the death of Betsy Faria. This is your reminder that this is a show about true crime, and this particular episode deals with murder, so 
Some people may find this a bit disturbing, may have triggers they're afraid are going to go off. If you think you might be one of those people, here's your chance. Turn this off. Find something else. Otherwise, it is a true crime podcast. Why are you listening? The most detailed and best information I have found on the Faria's background comes from the Bone Deep book that I read. It is called Bone Deep, Untangling the Betsy Faria Murder Case. It was written by Charles Bosworth Jr. and Joel Schwartz, who was the main attorney on Russ Faria's case. And I quote, 1997, O'Fallon, Missouri. Russ Faria had noticed the cute young woman behind the cash register the first time he went into the store at the service station where he had stopped for gas in O'Fallon in 1997. She had a huge smile that lit up her face and her blue eyes sparkled as the perfect reflection of the personality everyone called bubbly. Her curly brown hair had blondish highlights, which Russ thought were a classy touch. He made a point of chatting her up every time he went to the station, including the extra stops he made just to see the girl he had quickly come to know as Betsy Carter. She was genuinely nice and friendly, remarkably extroverted, really, and he hoped her response to his flirtatious banter was an indication she was interested in him. He was right. Although she was still going through a divorce, she asked Ross out on a date. It was the first step in a romance that soon led to their decision to live together in her mobile home in O'Fallon. Russ was 28 and Betsy was 29. She had two little girls, seven and three, from a relationship before the short marriage that was about to end in the pending divorce. Russ quickly grew to love the girls just as he did their mother. After living together for two years, Russ and the now, and the now divorced Betsy married in January 2000. Russ Faria had grown up in nearby Florissant, Missouri, one of the, po the popular middle-class communities in the northern edge of St. Louis. He had spent a year in Florida with his parents when he was in the sixth and seventh grades while his father worked as a construction laborer and painter. After they returned to the St. Louis area, Russ went back to school in the Florissant area until he dropped out of Hazelwood Central High School in 1987. Two years later, he earned his high school general equivalency degree from a nearby technical school. He had a series of jobs, including maintenance for a major grocery chain and 10 years managing a liquor store during the time he met Betsy. He went on to work for an asphalt company and then, and then a company that assembled bicycles for a big box and discount stores. But Betsy knew he was capable of a more substantial career in life. She encouraged him to go back to school and he attributed his, he attributed his associates and bachelor's degrees in information technology to her positive influence. The degrees led to a good job in 2007 in IT technical support for Enterprise Holdings, the parent company of the massive enterprise leasing operation headquartered in St. Louis County. Betsy Meyer Faria also had grown up in the St. Louis suburbs, the third of four daughters of a staunchly Roman Catholic family. She was a standout softball pitcher in grade school and high school and a member of the state championship teams in 1984 and 1985. As a senior in high school, she had started her own DJ business, called Party Starters. She attended classes in broadcasting that complemented her DJ business. It was the perfect outlet for her love of music and extroverted personality. She could get anyone out of their comfort zone and onto the dance floor. She operated the business part-time and after Russ started seeing her, he often assisted at her DJ events by running the sound system. Betsy said she had performed at 1,500 weddings and other events. 
After broadcasting school, she landed a job as a DJ at a country music station in the Florida Keys, where she began a long-term relationship with a man who moved back to St. Louis with her in 1989 and fathered her two daughters in 1990 and 1994. They never married, and he returned to Florida shortly after their second daughter was born. He had barely any contact with the girls as they were growing up. Betsy married Ron Carter in 1995, but it only lasted about a year before she divorced him. Despite a happy start to the Faria's marriage, it soon proved far less than perfect. They argued often, and Russ would admit that his sometimes volatile temper could lead to angry words with Betsy and her daughters that he would later regret. They separated a few times, including once for about a year while he stayed with a friend across the Mississippi River in a nearby southwestern Illinois. They both had relationships with people outside of their marriage, but each time they separated, they would forgive each other and decide to try again to make their marriage work. End quote. So the Farias do get back together. They want to try to work on their relationship. They want to buy the house they're living in, but for some reason, there's a problem with the purchase, and so they're unable to do that. They end up moving about a half an hour away from where they were living in O'Fallon to a place called Troy, Missouri. The Faria's youngest daughter, Mariah, was still in high school at the time that they moved, and she decided that she would much rather stay in the high school that she had started in and graduate there. So she decided to stay in Lake St. Louis with her grandmother, Janet Meyer, which is Betsy's mother, so that she could finish out in the school district and in the school that she had already been attending. Their older daughter, Leah, was about 19 when they moved into the house. She was 21 at the time of Betsy's murder. She was having some problems with her parents. Sounds like a lot of normal sort of teenage stuff. Freya's are trying to tell her one of the things for sure is, is the boyfriend. They're not really thrilled with the boyfriend. Leah decided she didn't, couldn't get along with them. The Faria's decided that if she was going to live there, she was an adult, so if she's going to live in their house, she needed to follow the rules. So Leah moved out, and she was staying with one of Betsy's sisters, her Aunt Julie. It's just Russ and Betsy living in the house in Troy. They start going to a church. They do have some counseling sessions with the pastor there, and it seems like things are really working for the two of them. Russ works for Enterprise Holdings and IT, and he does most of his work from home, and he does that in the basement of their home. Betsy was working, but unfortunately, she does find out she has breast cancer. With the ongoing struggle that comes with having cancer, she ends up not being able to work. So Betsy was diagnosed in 2009. She underwent a mastectomy and reconstructive surgery in 2010. And that cancer was actually considered in remission by early in 2011. However, she started not feeling great. She went back to the doctor for some tests. In the meantime, they go out to Rhode Island for a family wedding. And at that wedding, the doctor called her with the news that the cancer had not only returned, it had spread to her liver. The cancer they found out at that point was inoperable and Betsy probably had three to five years to live. The diagnosis Having such a short time to live didn't necessarily dampen Betsy's spirits. Betsy overall tended to have a positive outlook on life. This comes from Jeanette Cooperman's January 19, 2017 article, The Unimaginable Infamous Case of Pam Hupp. And just so you know, Pam will come up a couple of times in this episode. Pam is one of Betsy's friends who happens to be the last per uh, the person that drove her home on the night that she was murdered. But for right now, you just need to know that she is one of Betsy's friends and they met at their job. 
And I want to read the part about Betsy. And I quote, Pam also took a clerical job in a state farm office, and Betsy Faria was the first person she met there. 11 years younger than Pam, Betsy was warm-hearted and bubbly and scatterbrained, always short of cash, but short up emotionally by dozens of friends who adored her. Even at 32, she looked like a greeting card illustration. Round face, curly hair, pink cheeks, bright blue eyes. And in her part-time gig as a DJ, she could coax anybody onto the dance floor. End quote. Following is a quote from The Unsolved Murder of Betsy Faria by Marnie Armstrong. And I quote, Catherine Meyer was a friend of Betsy's, and she explained that just prior to the time she was murdered, the mother of two had just begun to come to terms with the fact that she was dying of cancer. But she felt her finances, at least, were in order, thanks to her insurance policies. Policies that will take care of my husband and my daughters so that when I die, they will be well taken care of, she had explained to Catherine. Her friend also pointed out that Betsy was a campaigner who raised money for other cancer sufferers. This was going to be a legacy for her, to leave something behind in her memory, said Catherine. Betsy had not been working alone in her campaign and had teamed up with Pam Hupp, a friend who she had met at the place of work. The two had gone from door to door seeking to raise money for cancer sufferers. End quote. But even with her positive outlook, Betsy did lose hope at times. She threatened to commit suicide, leaving a note at one point being being taken in for analysis after being stopped by a patrolman and telling him that she was trying to take her own life. So now we have rolled up on the end of 2011. It is just after Christmas, December 27th. Betsy had a chemo treatment that day, and she usually likes somebody to go with her. So she has something to do because basically they hook you up to a machine and you just sit there for a couple hours. I think she was also feeling a little bit that driving when she's not feeling good might not be the best thing to do. So she does, she tries to get a ride to and from. Pam had been doing a lot of this, but not always. Today, she wanted to visit with her friend and former babysitter, Bobby Warren. This woman had come back into town for the holidays, and Betsy really wanted to have the time alone with her to visit. And so she actually had told Pam to not bring her because her friend would do it, and that she had originally arranged for Russ to pick her up and bring her home. And actually, during this whole thing, Pam shows up anyway, wanting to just make sure that uh, Betsy was not going to be left there by herself. And so Betsy texts, texts Russ and tells him that he doesn't need to actually come get her because Pam showed up and that she had offered to take her home and Betsy had accepted. Russ Faria left his home sometime after 5 p.m. when he had finished up his work for Enterprise. On Tuesday nights, Russ commonly goes to his mom's house for dinner and then heads to a friend's house in O'Fallon to play games. This Tuesday night, he told his mom, so this is Tuesday the 27th of December, he told his mom he wouldn't be able to make it and he set off to run several errands before arriving at his friend's for what would end up being movies instead of games. Game night wound to a close about 9 p.m. Russ stopped at Arby's on his way home for a late dinner and arrived back to his home in Troy just after 9.30. That's when he walked in the door. He put down a large bag of dog food he had picked up before game night. He took off his coat and laid it on a chair and laid his gloves on the seat. And then rounding the various furniture and island in the kitchen going into the living room, he saw Betsy. She was laying on her stomach in dark clothes. There was a lot of blood. 
Her wrists were cut open, and there was a steak knife protruding from her neck. The following is from the Dateline podcast about um, Betsy's murder and the subsequent investigations following that. I have spliced a few sections together for the purpose of this podcast. I highly recommend the multi-part series. Keith Morrison is subtly snarky to perfection. Although, I do recommend that you just wait until you've gotten through IAR's episodes of this case so you can appreciate his sarcasm in full. It was December 27th, 2011. Country dark, just a sliver of moon. An approaching car broke the silence and turned into the driveway. He walked a short, shadowed path to his porch and opened the unlocked door of his home. Lincoln County 911, what is the location of your emergency? <laughs> Hello? Hello? Yes, okay, who am I speaking with? My name is Russell Faria. Russell, what's going on there? I just got home from a friend's house, and, and, and my wife... When Russ arrived at the house on Sumac Drive and called 911, he summoned the whole apparatus of the law. Uniforms, CSI, detectives... And they looked through Russ and Betsy's house very carefully, minutely. The coroner examined her body. CSI spent hours searching for hair, blood, DNA. And in the meantime, they took Russ in for questioning. Talking here, if you don't mind. Questioned him basically for two days. So I can write things down, some talking to you, okay? In this police interview, Recorded during the early morning hours after Betsy's death, a detective sat down with Russ. Russ was in bad shape, at best. And he went in and out of what seemed like shock, answering questions one minute, crying the next minute, yelling, then answering questions again. This, this is where I need your help, okay? Eventually, Russ walked the detective through what happened when he got home that night. Did you come in through the front door or the garage? Through the front door. Okay. Through the front door. Okay. And I was putting the dog food down and taking my jacket off when I saw, saw, saw Betsy. Okay. And I fell down. Then I was looking at her and she wasn't moving. Okay. She wasn't moving. And I thought she killed herself. Okay. What made you think that? Because I saw her arms slashed. Her arm was slashed, and it was slashed crossways. Okay. And it was very deep. And I saw a knife. I... Paramedics and officers at the scene immediately believed this was no suicide. I mean, who commits murder by stabbing themselves in the neck? And who could cut their wrists and then still be able to hold the knife to stab their neck? Russ claimed suicide. Investigators were suspicious. At autopsy, it was discovered Betsy was stabbed 55 times. This comes from a Fox 2 episode out of St. Louis that's dated the 13th of February, 2015. And this is Janet Meyer, Betsy's mother, speaking. I knew immediately. 55 stab wounds, the knife left in her neck. And as we think it's her husband. Mr. Faria. Just like that. Everything came together. A crime of passion. When you stab somebody over 50 times, it's usually a crime of passion, a husband or wife. I felt right away it was, his, it was Russ. Then there was the hysterical 911 call interspersed with the moments of calm 
that seemed odd. Then all of the errands he performed. Was he trying to establish an alibi? The games they usually played with his friends were our, they played Rollmaster and Talisman. And for you novices out there, these games are akin to Dungeons and Dragons, which apparently people still think have something to do with Satanism. Don't even get me started on that. On top of that, all the game players had smoked some pot that night, but none of them were drinking alcohol. Investigators gave him a polygraph, and guess what? He agrees. Never take the polygraph. But anyway, that's your PSA for today. And guess what? It's like watching evil Tammy Lee telling Ross he failed. You 100%. Now, at one point, I actually did see the interview tape. I swear I saw the interview where Ross is told that he has failed the polygraph. Unfortunately, I cannot find it. But I do know there are a couple other videos that I know I saw for sure that have been since deleted within just like a week or two of me starting to research this case. And I'm thinking it is entirely possible that because this is still an active case, it is entirely possible that access to these to certain bits of information, certain videos, certain documentaries have been pulled. I do not know if they were pulled in advance. In other words, um, the production company is just trying to cover its own ass um, and not get sued for having this stuff out there when there's an active case ongoing or if there is an actual gag order on some of these things. But it is entirely possible that that is why these things are no longer available. However, my point being here that even though I'm positive I have seen this video of him being told about his polygraph test, I cannot find it. So unfortunately, I cannot play you a clip of it. You'll just have to go with my word on that one. They finally let him go. Russ goes about trying to plan Betsy's funeral. And they actually have two funerals. One, one for all of the Catholic relatives and one for the friends at their new church. Russ calls the insurance company to see if he can get the insurance payout in order to pay for Betsy's funeral. He also has her cremated. Investigators also speak with Betsy's friend, Pam, who drove Betsy home that night after her chemo session. Pam told investigators that Betsy was actually becoming afraid of Russ, saying he was belittling to her and had started putting a pillow over Betsy's face so she would know what it was like to die. The day after Betsy's funeral, law enforcement came to arrest Russ. Now, Russ's cousin, Mary, knows he's going to need a really good lawyer and it has sort of flipped her mind but she actually is reminded that she used to work for a law firm and in that law firm there was an attorney who had since become one of the best practicing defense attorneys in the state of Missouri and specifically in the St. Louis area. His name is Jill Schwartz and she decides that she's going to give him a ring and see if he can take Russ's case. And she has to remind him who she is but Joel, being the good attorney that he is, has been kind of keeping an eye on the cases that come up in the area, knowing that he may end up having to defend somebody who has a connection to that case. And so he had heard of the Faria case. So Joel decides that he will go over to the jail and talk with Russell Faria and Joel decides he will probably take the case, but he wants to see what Russ has to say for himself. 
and he also thinks that this is probably going to be a fairly easy case to either plead out or try because you know going off of what he had read in the newspaper reports which he does admit are often wrong but going off of those newspaper reports he figured it probably was a fairly simple case of husband kills wife and it would be a fairly easy case to take on so russ is in jail and he stays there for almost a full two years before his case officially goes to court and in this time period investigators should be really putting together the case so that it's solid and will hold up in court and will convict russ beyond a shadow of a doubt he did this crime and now during this time period russ has lost betsy's entire family including the two daughters he raised as his own, Leah and Mariah. They now believe that he has killed Betsy. They finally actually have a jury trial in November of 2013. And in this trial, the jury hear that Russ and Betsy had kind of a tumultuous past. They argued quite a bit. They did separate several times. Both of them had had affairs, if you will, with people outside of the marriage during these separation periods. Russ had definitely had moments where his mouth would shoot off and he would he would say things that were probably not appropriate. According to some people, Betsy was good at giving as much as she got. Leah and Mariah testify that Russ did at times say things and the way he said them made them a little scared of him and that he did say things that sometimes were derogatory towards their mother. Pam testified that he had been saying things that scared Betsy, including the comment about the pillow. The jury also hear that Russ failed the polygraph examination. However, polygraph report, both the audio and video feed of that polygraph examination were not able to be presented at trial because according to the investigators, and the prosecution that the equipment had been malfunctioning at the time and therefore could not record. The jury hear that Russ had been acting a bit strangely around that Christmas. He had given the girls a decent amount of cash in their Christmas socks, which is something he had never done in the past and he had always been a bit tight with money. He also made sure to take a family picture. He made a big deal about taking that family picture around that Christmas. Again, also something that had never really been done in the past. The jury are presented with all of the stops he made on his way to game night. He made something like five separate stops, two of them at service stations, one for gas and one for cigarettes. The point pointed out by the prosecution being that he could have gotten the gas and the cigarettes at one place, so my, why make two separate stops? The jury hear that Betsy was stabbed 55 times. They pushed the point that this confirmed it being a rage killing and that there was no way Russ could have mistaken 55 stab wounds for suicide and that his claim of suicide was just his way of deflecting the blame. It is brought up to the jury Russ's state after he allegedly finds Betsy dead in their home, he is hysterical on the 911 call, their words, and he continues to act not quite as hysterical, but there are definitely moments of, for lack of a better word, rampant crying during sessions at the police station, especially when they would leave him alone. 
And this hysterical nature would stop when the 911 caller and the investigators would ask him a question and he would become calm and fairly rational and try to answer their questions. And then when they would pause again, either in that 911 call or in the interrogation sessions, he would become very emotional. He would start praying, he would start weeping, wailing, crying, and so forth. The point was made by the prosecution that this seemed to be more of a performance than actual grief because there would be no way for him to be that hysterical and then just suddenly stop being hysterical to answer a question and then go back to being hysterical again. The jury is told about a supposed trail of blood that was detected by the use of luminol and luminol, for those of you that don't know, is a chemical that lights up blue when it comes into contact with biologicals. It is often used to determine blood, but it is not a slam dunk because like I said, it lights up with biologicals and actually some cleaning supplies. So during the trial, there is actually a comment made that it looked like it had been blood, but they had, someone had tried to clean up the blood. And this trail led from the living room where Betsy was killed into the kitchen and this lit up like a Christmas tree, but unfortunately the photos that were taken of this trail did not turn out. There was a camera malfunction and all that they would be able to show if they were to produce the photos would be black. There is also a smear of blood on the light switch and there is blood on Russell's slippers, which have been found under some other things in the back of his closet. They hear that he has four witnesses that put him 30 miles away for the time period that the crime was committed. However, because the testimonies were so similar by those four witnesses, his four friends from game night, the prosecution pokes holes in, in saying that it was rehearsed. And ultimately, Russ is convicted of killing his wife. And Russ was sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. And therein lies the end of the tale of Russ and Betsy Ferrio. But wait. This is called foreshadowing. And this is straight from Bone Deep. The fact of the matter is, it's a sloppy crime scene. There's blood on your clothes, in your residence, in your bedroom. I didn't even go in my bedroom. How did the blood get under your clothes? And also in your shoes in your bedroom, Russ? Somebody break into your house and put your shoes on to kill your wife? Dun, dun, dun. And yes, I know that last bit was cheesy, but I can't help myself. I'm leaving it in. So join me next time on It's All Relative, where we will talk about the absolute insanity that is this case. We will talk about what went wrong with the investigation and with the trial, and who really did kill Betsy Faria. Wilty didn't say it the best. Miss Megan Trainer will.